0: I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had, the challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. Welcome back, everyone, to season two of the Beyond Trauma podcast. I am so excited to introduce you to today's guest. Micah Mortali was the director of Kripalu Schools, a place many of you may know, for seven years, and it was during this period that he was inspired to create the groundbreaking Kripalu School of Mindful Outdoor Leadership which is where he is now and where I took his level one training to be a mindful outdoor guide. And I'm definitely going back for level two. Micah's work is about helping modern humans reconnect with their deeper, truer selves through mindfulness, rewilding, and immersion in the natural world. He is a lifelong student of the world's great spiritual traditions, whose undergraduate work was in comparative world religions. And he is dedicated to the idea that human beings are a self-aware expression of the living earth and that our future depends on awakening to this reality and remembering how to communicate more effectively with the systems that govern life on this planet. In this interview, we discuss how nature immersion, rewilding, survival, and ancestral skills can support our circadian rhythms and the proper release of melatonin, and how they can regulate our nervous systems and ease the impacts of trauma. We talk about the impact of technology on our psyches and that of our children, especially teens, the minimum non-negotiable outdoor time a human needs each week. So get that number and start tracking. And I share my personal experiences learning from Micah and how they helped me through some really tough, dysregulated times. I want to say a couple of things, which I didn't get to say in the interview. Folks who come to Micah's courses and trainings are not some kind of nature nerds or folks who know a ton about living outside. They're actually regular people, all ages and backgrounds, some of who are coming back outside for the first time. So we can all make a start. And also that you might hear some terms like the living non-human natural world or on the land when we're talking about what you may refer to as nature. And just by changing our language, nature can feel really like something out there that's not us. We can become more connected with this ecosystem that we're a part of. So you might just start there as you begin your journey to reconnecting. And by referring to animals and to trees and plants as they or he or she, instead of it, can also be a way into reconnection with this ecosystem that we are a part of. I hope you enjoy. All right. Welcome, Micah. Thank you for joining me today.
1: It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me on.
0: I thought I'd start by sharing with listeners how I came to know about you and your work, which was actually through my husband. The listeners haven't exactly been introduced to my husband yet, but if any of you have heard the trailer episode to the podcast, or if you want to scroll way back to the Coming This May trailer, there is a funny guy with a German accent. That's my husband, Timo, who you know, Micah. (laughs) And uh, he's the one who introduced me to your work. He's an endless learner, and he was down some rabbit hole, and it led him to hear you as a guest on another podcast. I can't remember which podcast it was. And I listened to it at his uh, advice, and then I bought your book, Rewilding Meditations, Practices, and Skills for Awakening in Nature, and started following you on the social media, (laughs) and somehow came to hear about this five-night rewilding and ancestral skills tent camping retreat that you were holding in the Berkshires, which I thought, yeah, why not do that? Even though I hadn't been camping since I was a child and only once, (laughs) maybe once in my teens, actually. Okay. When I arrived at your workshop, I was not in a good place. I was at capacity. I had just gotten back from being at my mother-in-law's for six weeks, which I love you, Katarina, but um, we were in a small space. It was very, very hot and nowhere to really take my kid during the day. I was about a week before I had to hand in my manuscript for my book and I was trying to reinvent my career, which was thwarted to closing my yoga studio and COVID. I had just moved to the country. I was kind of alone and So, yeah, when I say I was at capacity, I was kind of like crying at anything. (laughs) The tears would just come. I knew I was crazy. I knew I shouldn't be crying, but they would just come. And sometimes I would just even laugh, kind of like a crazy person. And I'm sharing this because, you know, it can happen if we allow ourselves to go over capacity. Basically, I was just so full and hadn't done my self work to reduce my anxiety that anything would just kind of set me off. So that's where I was when I arrived. And I'm not sure how much of that you could see, Micah. Um, I tried to share in counsel, which maybe you can explain in a minute for listeners. But I also tried not to overshare, to be kind of lean of word, as you recommend, and not to burden others in the group or individuals who might be going through their their own thing. So I wanted to set that up just to, you know, where I was at and then where I left. So I did these five nights with you camping in a tent. Most of it was pouring rain. And when I left, I was calm, happy, inspired, light, excited. I mean, a different, really a different person, less than a week. So what happened to me, Micah, on that, on that trip?
1: Yeah. go. Oh, yeah. Oh, what a week it was. <laughs> So I didn't pick up on any of that that was going on with you, really, Lara. So just so you know, a little bit in council, yeah, but um had no idea you know, what you were coming in with. So what happened? Well, a combination of a lot of different things. One of the things that happens when we spend five days camping is, especially if we're not using screens or technology too much, And we're, you know, kind of going to bed a little earlier because we you know, we're not, we don't have electricity and there was no electricity up there. One thing that happens is our circadian rhythm, our internal circadian rhythm starts to reset and align more with the natural light dark cycle. So we were in October, early October for that program, and it was starting to get, you know, much darker in the evenings. And, and so that's one thing that happens is most of us are pretty dysregulated in terms of our circadian rhythm, mm. because of the grid and electricity and electric light and screens. So, when we give ourselves five nights, when it gets dark, we kind of crawl into our tent, maybe read for a couple of minutes and then conk out. Your brain you starts to secrete melatonin earlier and you go into a deep sleep. And then your brain starts to produce serotonin like right around sunrise. And it happens very quickly and it's been documented. So that's one thing that, that probably was going on for you. Mm. Another thing was being outside for five days straight. You know, that has a profoundly beneficial impact on human beings. And so we know from the research that's been done on forest bathing that even just like 120 minutes a week or a 45 minute walk in the forest can lower our stress levels. You know, just kind of measured through our cortisol levels in the blood, lower our heart rate and our blood pressure, increase the body's immune response, improve our mood, improve our sleep, increase feelings of vitality. All these things have been documented from just being outside. And so if you go on a program where you're outside for five whole days and You know, you're logged off of your phone and you're not checking your email all the time and you allow yourself to just kind of be in your natural habitat as a Homo sapien, you're gonna get a bunch of amazing benefits from that. And I think that's really for me what it boils down to is the realization that Homo sapiens sapiens, human beings, we have a natural habitat in the same way that a mountain gorilla has a natural habitat and you know, a Bengal tiger has a natural habitat. So, you know, if you take a wild animal. A gorilla, a tiger. You put them in an apartment in Brooklyn, with uh, Zoom and a treadmill, and delivery of food to their door, and uh, give them, you know, uh, health insurance. Get them spending ninety percent of their lives indoors and eleven hours a day on a screen. You're probably going to get a pretty unhealthy tiger, a pretty unhealthy gorilla, and a, probably a depressed or an anxious tiger
0: and or mm. gorilla.
1: It's funny that we think somehow we should be exempt from that, that as human beings, we can just put ourselves in an artificial environment and bombard ourselves with a lifetime's worth of information in a day and think that we're going to do well with that. And the last thing I guess I'll say in answer to your question is, I think we, we developed a pretty nice sense of community and fellowship out there amongst our small clan of other rewilders and, you know, having time being off the outlook schedule, you know, being off of your devices and just being on earth time and being around a fire with other people and sharing a meal with a small group. That's a very uncommon thing in this day and age, but it's really our default setting and how human beings spent most of our history was uh, with other people getting to know each other, working together with our hands, hunting and gathering, helping each other, supporting each other. And, you know, I think that that's certainly a big benefit as well to that kind of an experience.
0: Hmm, Yeah, it definitely was that feeling of we were kind of working on our own projects sometimes, but just being together and someone would come over and help you. And there was both this element of doing things for yourself and having the support of this kind of small group.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Maybe you can explain a little more, Micah, about human beings, homo sapiens, and how we evolved with the natural world? Sure.
1: Well, it's kind of straightforward, I think. I think we're all aware that human beings didn't spend the majority of their time you know, in these artificial environments until pretty recently. Our species... Well, here's <laughs> interesting things. Are like, there's a lot we don't know about ourselves as a species. We've been around on Earth for a while, but um, if you go back more than five or 6,000 years ago... There's so much we don't know. But what we do know is that we spent a lot of time as hunters and gatherers, and even before agriculture was discovered. So we were moving many, many miles a day. You know, I think the average person was probably walking somewhere around like 12 to 18 miles a day, oftentimes. And we were moving, you know, a variety of movements. You know, we didn't have chairs, we were squatting, we were sitting on the ground, we were climbing trees. We were not stationary, we weren't sedentary. All of that movement helped us to be in our bodies. And uh, while we were moving and while we were exploring and, and surviving and thriving, we were also interacting with a really diverse habitat. You know, we were interacting with the living earth. Before the modern era, human beings were deeply connected to where their food came from. That really brought them into relationship with plants and animals and fungi and the weather and the, the landscape. And I would say probably for most of human history, we interacted with an animate earth. We interacted with a landscape that we saw as very much alive and conscious. And those relationships, you know, those you know, many cultures talk about the great web of life or the tree of life. And we had relationships with bears and buffalo and eagles and hawks and ants and frogs. And every single animal was a teacher and had something, some special medicine to share. And every plant was also like an ally and a partner and a teacher. And You know, Robin Wall Kimmerer in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, kind of talks about the absence of those relationships as something she calls a species loneliness, which she calls like a deep unnamed sadness that stems from not being able to call out anymore to our neighbors, you know, out on the land. And So if we think about our bodies and our senses, but also like our minds, our mind, our consciousness, our body, our senses, like really has always existed in a state of dynamic contact and relationship with everything basically like you know we talk about climate when we talk about climate like it's just it's kind of another word for everything we had a relationship with the cosmos in a way that i think today we've been divorced from our modern homes are very comfortable you know i love to camp and be out there in the rain for a few days you know but i won't lie like it's pretty great to be able to come home at the end of the day and be in a in a house that's like super dry and comfortable and warm. So those comforts, as wonderful as they are, it just makes it easy for us to stay in our comfort zone and to spend more and more and more time inside. And certainly with the digital age and the internet and computers and phones, so many of the things that we might've gotten on the phone to find or looked in the phone book or had to take a ride downtown to go see if that store had that thing or all those things now we kind of do through our phones and our screens or even our work. And so life has migrated inside. And the really sad thing is it's migrated inside, not only for adults, but for children. Hmm. And children are having what I would call just like a really diminished experience of being a child these days through just getting a tablet put in their hands when they're so young. Mm. This is part of the invitation, I think, for this time is we've had this technology just very quickly placed into our hands. And I think we've kind of been drunk on it, you know, for the first 15 years or so, you know, the iPhone came out in 2007, I think. And, you know, so it's kind of like, uh, you could imagine if fire was given to to somebody 100,000 years ago, and it was so amazing and they just totally overused it and burned down the forest,
0: mm, yeah. <laughs>
1: you know, and, and it may be in a few years that like we're going to look back and be like, God, you know, those phones were so uh, too many apps, like just it was too much. We overdid it, you know, and we might find ourselves culling back and finding more humane and balanced ways of uh, working with this tech. But I guess that's part of the challenge what we're trying to figure out right now
0: yeah i'm hoping I'm hopeful for that for my kid. I'm hoping she missed the peak <laughs> by the time she's a little older that we've calmed down with some of that
1: yeah I mean we're really working with that with our kids right now um you know so our youngest kids are ten and twelve and they're kind of in an alternative school and so a, a lot of their friends don't have iPhones and tablets, but we're getting to that age where they're starting to want technology and so just funny story our daughter wanted like like an iPod touch or um, something like that. So she could listen to music. Anyway, we got her an AM FM radio. Mm-hmm. And it's been cool to watch her just like play with the radio at night and put her headphones on and listen to the radio. And so we're, we're trying to figure these things out. And there's a real difference between the analog experience that we had as kids and the, and the real digital network experience that kids can have today where, you know, you can, kid can go on a phone and just Go down a rabbit hole, you know, yeah. and they get exposed to so much. And so, you know, maybe the FM radio will be a little bit different.
0: We were up in Vermont this weekend. My husband was learning how to carve his own paddle and um at the school of the forest. And we're staying at a hotel and we had our daughter with us and we turned on the TV and she's, you know, asking for let it go, which is what she calls frozen. <laughs> Oh nice. and I'm like it's not that kind of tv honey you can't just call out what you want and it plays it was just like a regular tv you know funny. where you have to watch what's ever on <laughs> and even that you know she's used to like on demand right whatever uh whatever show she wants to watch so we ended up watching some pbs which was excellent nice
1: <laughs> that's funny that's like a star trek reality it's like computer on I remember like Scotty you know used to talk to things. And yeah, that's the reality of where we're at right now.
0: Yeah. Just everything now. Yeah. Yeah. You worked earlier in your career with at-risk teens, bringing them out in nature, right? Down a river, I think it was kind of. Uh So yeah. I wonder what was that experience and why do you think this organization chose like a nature immersion, survival out in the, you know, the land activity as something specifically that would help teens who are Hmm. at risk for negative life outcomes?
1: Yeah. So I worked for a company called Eckerd Youth Alternatives, which was based down in Clearwater, Florida, and had camps from Florida all the way up to New Hampshire. And uh, they've since really cut back their wilderness programs, unfortunately. But when I was there, it was kind of the heyday. It was a place that was started by Jack Eckerd. If you've ever been down south, he was the guy who started all those Eckerd drugstores. And he, was, uh, he really wanted to help young people. And so they started up these wilderness camps. The philosophy around it was kind of based on this idea that, well, when, at the time, it was, for, it was all for young boys. And then they opened it up and had girls programs as well. But essentially, what it was was small group work. So you'd have a group of maybe eight boys, and uh, with a couple like uh, counselors who were in each group. It was all relationship based, and the way it worked was, you know, the kids would be in the program because they would either they would have to choose between that or sometimes like a detention center. And the the idea was that camp would give them a chance to change the course of their lives. Essentially what happened was you would, the kids would go out there and they were just kind of stuck out there in the woods with you. You know, you would cook a lot of your meals in a campsite and kids would build their own. We would build these like log tents that we would, you know, cut down the trees and make the plans and cut the notches and kids would live in them, you know, and they would last for a couple of years and then we'd rebuild them. And the kids were there for a year at a time and it was 11 to 17 year olds. A lot of what would happen in that program was kids would get into disagreements with one another, or they would have communication challenges or behavior challenges. And it was all group work. So the way it would work was a camper could call a huddle, any camper at any time could call a huddle. And then we'd all stand in a circle and we would talk through whatever the issue was. And sometimes those huddles lasted 30 seconds and sometimes they lasted a couple of days. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it was all uh, natural consequences. So if, if kids couldn't work together, if they couldn't solve their problems, then we sat out there and would miss meals or get to bed late. And we kind of learned as we went. And uh, yeah, I would lead, uh, we would do three-week river trips down there. So we would get a bunch of canoes and pack up a lot of food and we would get on the river and, you know, five or six canoes. And for two and a half or three weeks, we would be paddling down one of these rivers down in South Carolina or Florida camping on the banks, and a real adventure, you know, really, really out there. The program had a good recidivism rate, you know, kids for the year after. Generally, the majority of them stayed out of trouble. But it was, uh, you know, that's pretty hard work. You know, a lot of the young people that we dealt with in that program had a lot of trauma. A lot of them had anger control issues, impulse control issues, were oppositional or defiant. And uh, you get, you know, eight or ten of those types of kids in the same group together, you know, sparks will fly. So there was a lot of conflict resolution and de-escalating and stuff like that. You know, honestly, before I went down there, I was kind of like a new age spiritual guy and uh, thought that, you know, I would just be able to waltz in there with my yoga knowledge and my wisdom from ancient scriptures. (laughs)
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And really be able to, you know, transform these kids and it was uh, just not the case. I learned as much from them and it humbled me and, in, mm. uh, in really important ways and was kind of a rite of passage for me as a 22 year old, 23 year old young man going down there and having an experience like that. It was, you know, by far the, the most difficult job I've ever had. Mm. Yeah. For sure. yeah.
0: Yeah. Those who've worked with young people like that, who've been through their own traumas can definitely relate to that. I wonder if the shifts, that they did see in the teens or that you saw, if you would attribute that to the nature, the just kind of being stuck in this situation together, they built some perspective or grit, or they felt the support of your leadership. What do you think it was that made that positive impact?
1: I think it was kind of all the things we talked about with your experience in the rewilding program. You know, I think it was very similar. One of the things that that I observed was, uh, you know, some of the boys would come into the program, they might be 13 or 14. But you know, they acted like they were 17 or 18. And a lot of them had developed a lot of armor, you know, were really tough kids, and sometimes would, you know, had to put on this air that they were really tough, and not to be messed with. And a lot of bravado. And one of the things that I noticed with some of the kids was uh, there was this one week at, at the camp where we would do like a whole week of, it was like a medieval theme. And so the different groups of kids would have different like houses and kids would make costumes and we'd have all of these like really fun events during the week. And I can remember this one young boy who was, you know, from an inner city and just like really, really tough kid when he came in and And I remember seeing him with a tinfoil hat on and a tinfoil sword
0: Mm.
1: running through the woods. And I saw the innocence of the child that he was. And the fact that he felt safe enough there to be able to let that part of him be expressed was like one of the most beautiful things I saw there the whole time. It's the nature, it's the community, it's the challenge of it for sure. I think for young people, when we're in a transition time or when we're moving through puberty into adulthood, those are times when, you know, rites of passage are essential. And to have an experience where you get to test your abilities against life and reality, and the challenges are created in such a way that you kind of hit that sweet spot where, yes, you're challenged. Yes, you don't know if you can do it, but you do have the skills to succeed. Those can be extremely positive experiences for young people. And I think, you know, a lot of that came into play down there as well.
0: Mm, That is definitely something that we are lacking in modern living. That was a real part of our history all throughout, you know, with different cultures, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I also wonder how learning survival skills, and this is for young people and adults, women like myself, learning how to build a shelter, make a fire to identify, at least some plants in the natural world can also help to combat depression and anxiety and give us a sense of empowerment. I know, you know, when we've been through trauma. We've lost some of that autonomy. And can you speak to that at all? Have you seen that?
1: Yeah, survival skills, or sometimes we call them ancestral skills or earth living skills, I like all the terms. I like survival skills, you know, in different contexts. But I also like ancestral and earth living because it kind of helps us to think about these things in terms of like part of our human heritage and something that connects us to our ancestors and connects us to the earth. Learning these types of skills is important on a a few different levels, I think. You know, on one level, I think about it in terms of maybe, you know, Maslow's hierarchy if everybody learns some basic survival skills, then no matter what happens in the world, you kind of always know that you can fall back on the basics, right? Like food, water, shelter, fire. Mm -hmm. Everybody had the ability to know that like, no matter what, you could fall back on being able to provide those things for yourself in a very simple and a very rudimentary way. That provides a certain sense of safety and a certain sense of self-empowerment. So I think on that level, it's important. The other thing is that learning how to, to make a shelter, you know, learning how to birth fire, learning what wild edibles are in your yard, and on and on. Each one of these things, if we come at it from an awareness or a mindfulness perspective, these things are also doorways of connection. And you know, we talked about species loneliness a little while ago and nature divorcement and nature deficit disorder. And, you know, sometimes I call it life force deficit, you know, the way that modern life disconnects us from these power sources and leaves us feeling diminished or disempowered or disconnected or sad. Birthing a fire, animal tracking, knowing your trees, all these things are, what we're doing is we're rekindling a relationship that is part of our art that our ancestors had that are super important because they're part of the network of living things that we are a part of. And we can get so much joy from a good fire, right? So much satisfaction and nourishment from the light and the beauty of a fire. Trees are amazing. We can benefit so much from learning from trees and feeling the texture of the different barks and smelling the leaves and the needles and knowing the different types of wood and working with it and climbing them and being in their shade and eating the fruits and the nuts that they offer and on and on and on for everything you know all of these different things you know are um entertaining awe inspiring and super super important and ancestral skills are a are a really beautiful way in because when you learn how to make your own bow drill kit, when you learn how to use a knife and uh, fashion your own tools, when you learn you know how to listen out for the birds and what the birds are telling you, like all of these things are incredibly empowering. Recently, Lara, I launched uh, an archery program here at Kripalu Center in the Berkshires. And I know we did some archery during the rewilding intensive. And uh, I can't begin to share. Like It's been incredible to hear from people the effect of this ancestral skill, like shooting the bow and arrow, empowerment is a word that comes up every single time that I teach archery. I have so many people saying like, this was incredible, this was so empowering.
0: It was, I loved doing the archery. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: what did you love about it?
0: Yeah, it made me feel really strong. It made me feel really strong. And another thing that I loved about it was this play that was occurring in my field of attention between taking in the largeness of the environment that we were in, like you would often have us look up at the sky and look around and then centering in on this one small eye of the parrot, right? (laughs) Is it eye of the parrot? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so that field of focus, something about that felt very grounding and centering.
1: Yes, yes. It's a that's another thing I hear from people in regard to the archery is I've had quite a few people say, you know, I've been meditating for 20 years. I've been doing yoga for 30 years. I struggle with anxiety. My mind is always wandering. I can't believe how effective archery is for calming and quieting my mind. I've heard that from so many people and there's just something quite inherent in the practice of archery that brings about a sense of, you know, very powerful focus and single pointedness of attention.
0: Yeah. It's so quiet. And then you hear everyone shooting (laughs) their arrows and hitting and, uh, yeah, see, it's It's just, the memory is, it's so alive in me as we're talking about it. Um, I can recall it really quickly, um, in my whole body. Actually, now that you know that we're talking about Yeah, that sort of focus, what you just mentioned, it was a question I had for you. And I wanted to talk about also your background in yoga and in religions and spirituality. I guess, you know, starting with focus and yoga, I think is an interesting place to start because most of us, when we think about yoga, we think about this one pointed focus that you're kind of referring to. And when we work out in nature, a lot of the work that you do has this other practice where we work at bringing our senses more alive, being able to hear more and feel more and see more. And so I wondered if you might speak to how you're bringing these two practices together. Do they belong together and how you see that relationship?
1: Yeah, that's a cool question. So one of the things we, we do a lot with rewilding and the Mindful Outdoor Leadership work is we work with this practice called owl eyes or wide angle vision, which for the listeners is basically eyes are open and you're aware of your whole field of vision out from the very peripherals of your vision through the whole field of what is in front of you. So you kind of soften your gaze and just become aware of everything that's in your whole field of vision at the same time. And that's a really amazing practice because when we drop into that space, we automatically go into kind of a high band alpha brainwave state. So we go right into a meditative state and it puts us right into the witness or the observer because in order to be aware of that whole field, you can't be thinking about anything else. So whenever we're in owl eyes or wide angle vision, we're kind of seated in the, the booty, you know, we're kind of in that place of the witness which is uh, a big part of yoga and meditation and and, and, uh, whatnot. And when we're in owl eyes, one of the benefits from a hunter gatherer perspective, an earth skills perspective is that we can pick up on very small movements that we would normally miss. So an owl eyes, right? Like you'll notice, Oh, wow. There's an ant moving down here or there's a bird pumping its tail feathers, like way up on that branch. And we just become aware of that. It's kind of like a, a superpower, you know, and I think for folks who've never used their eyes that way, it can be like quite astonishing to realize, oh my God, I didn't know I had this ability to pick up on tiny movements in my field of vision.
0: Yeah. And there's also, I think, a good amount of research now coming out about softening and widening the gaze and what that can do for us mentally and emotionally. Yeah something worth looking into and especially since we're staring at a you know the screen again all day like if we can just take a break and soften the focus and use that full range I, i'm thinking also you know of trauma survivors we tend to be looking around for danger and this might be a way to allow the body and the nervous system to take in a great field of vision but also to remain calm. So maybe an answer to hypervigilance.
1: Yeah. Right. You know, I think it's an important point you bring up because I have definitely had experiences with sharing wide angle vision or owl eyes with folks. And it has been triggering for some people with trauma.
0: Mm.
1: So I've had a couple of veterans who've, you know, felt that when they were using that way of being, it kind of put them back into their hypervigilant experience that they had in combat.
0: Oh. Okay
1: yeah, so that's something that's something to be aware of with this particular practice, and here's the other thing too. you know you've got this wide angle way of seeing, and then you have this single pointed focus, which kind of comes into play when we're using archery, which can really clear the mind when we get very single pointed and you know and of course, and so many different ways to cultivate that, like the single pointedness could be cultivated right, through breath practice, or one of my favorites is candle gazing gazing at a candle trot dog or archery. You know, if you think about it, these two ways of seeing this really wide angle and then this really single-pointed focus, this really comes from our hunter-gatherer background, right? As hunters, we were always kind of reading the environment, looking for, maybe looking for something that might be hunting us, Right. And then also perhaps maybe we were the predator looking for food to feed our family or our clan. And then when, when we would notice something that was either a threat or something that we were going to try to hunt, then we would become pretty single-pointed and hone in on that. And we would toggle between those two ways of seeing as part of our normal day-to-day. And so these have now become sort of practices that we use for nature connection, but they have their source in hunter-gatherer cultures and life ways.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're in our our history and they're in our bodies.
1: Yeah, and if we think about people living very much in deep relationship with the earth, when we were still personally harvesting food and resources from our landscape, we spent a lot of time just sitting and observing with great awareness. This kind of brings me to one of the things I've been thinking a lot about the last couple of years, which is just this idea that in in modern life. We now quote unquote we practice mindfulness, right? We have mindfulness training programs and teachings and courses and so that we can develop mindfulness. And mindfulness being non-judgmental present moment awareness of so many definitions, you know. But what I've kind of come to over the years is that probably our ancestors more or less dwelt in a perpetual state of present moment awareness. Hmm. And that it's kind of been through modern life and our separation from nature and our, our our exit from the food chain. When we managed to extricate ourselves from being prey and set ourselves up kind of outside of the predator-prey cycle, we had the luxury of not being present. Yeah. So now we have to kind of cultivate this awareness, but probably for our ancestors, it was It was more or less how they lived. And I think there's some evidence for that among the San people in Southern Africa who lived in a very dynamic relationship with their environment and they didn't have to really plan ahead long-term because they were every day they would go out and, and harvest their food from their environment. And they don't really have much of a sense of planning for the future at all. They kind of lived in every day was the present. So it's interesting to think about that this idea that mindfulness really is, Maybe it isn't something that sort of evolved as a pinnacle of human experience. Maybe it was kind of the foundation of human experience that we lost touch with and now have to sort of bring back because of the conditions of our modern day-to-day living.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's something we're remembering. Right, right. That's beautiful.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, those practices you mentioned, the wide-angle vision and uh, that single-pointedness of focus... Those are skills that we all have. And you know, on the subject of remembering, when we go outside and we practice just sitting or listening or feeling our environment, obviously, this really brings us into our bodies and helps us to connect. And these are all things that anybody can do. There was this term that Richard Louvre talked about in one of his books called sensory anesthesia, And it's this idea that as modern human beings spending so much time inside, we can kind of lose touch of our senses. Mm -hmm. But the good news with what we're talking about here with owl eyes and with these focusing practices and our senses are not like irreparably damaged. They actually come right back. You know, if we feel like we're disconnected from our senses or our circadian rhythms are off. What I can say to your listeners, what I've been noticing, and I think what seems to be true is that, you know, a couple of days a little bit of time every week, being outside, all of these things tend to come back online pretty quickly, mm-hmm. which is, I think is a very wonderful thing that our bodies are so resilient that we can get back in touch with our humanity and our senses so easily with just a little bit of time.
0: Yeah, I can definitely attest to that from both the initial experience that I had with you and then I guess this past year, this past spring being with you at Krapalu. And doing the mindful outdoor leadership training that you created,
1: yeah, that's right, yes, you <laughs> did the whole nine days, that was fantastic,
0: <laughs> yeah, longest time yeah. away from my kid uh, yeah. since I had her, and that was um that was wonderful, and i I saw that as well, right At the, by the end, we were all like touching the trees as we walked. And I can definitely speak to the experience of when I first started getting outside more, this kind of, and I don't know who calls it this, but I know I read it this way. It's kind of like the wall of green. Yeah, It's just trees. (laughs) It's just like one green blob. And then, you know, at, at the end of just a week or so, you know, seeing these, those trees don't look alike at all, you know, right. even the, the same species of trees seeing, you know, differences, you know, from one tree to the next. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yes, absolutely. As a whole new world starts to open up.
0: Yeah. You start yeah. to see like so many things that you didn't realize were there. And, you know, maybe as I'm sharing that, and just this feeling of gratitude. So as I, I start to awaken the senses being back out in the natural world with the help of some of these mindfulness, breath work, and yoga practices that you combine with this nature immersion in the experiences that you create, Micah, which you're welcome to expand on. Then, as I'm starting to see more of what's happening and the interconnectedness, I notice that this gratitude starts to bubble up, and of course, we know gratitude key for combating um depression and loneliness and all these things that you know we're tending to suffer from these days. And maybe you, you can speak somewhat to that either in what you've seen or experienced yourself.
1: Oh, yeah, sure. Gratitude is a really interesting emotion and feeling and it comes into play when we experience a lack. And I've been thinking about this a lot. Pretty much all earth-based cultures have like a Thanksgiving or a gratitude philosophy that permeates their entire way of life. And I believe that that comes from the lived experience of taking life to survive. So if anyone listening has ever pulled a carrot out of the dirt in your garden, or a potato, or eaten food out of the garden, or maybe you had a, someone you know who gave you some fish that they fished out of the lake, or you know, you've had a personal connection to food, or if you've lived on a farm and an animal that you've cared for and known for a long time, you had to take their life and eat it. All of these experiences generate a complex network of feelings. It's a mixture often of sadness, grief, and thankfulness. Modern living in a lot of ways has severed us from that complex, rich experience. When we go to the store and we buy carrots in a bag or we go to the butcher shop and our meat's all wrapped up in plastic, when we get home to cook that food, there's a real distance between ourselves and the source of that food. You know, we never looked that animal in the eye, right? We never felt the dirt under our fingernails when we harvested those vegetables. And, uh, you know, for folks living once upon a time, whether it be the plants or the animals that they were relying on for survival, they had to kind of stay in right relationship with those beings. And uh, that was often the role of the shaman in the culture was to communicate with the spirit of the deer people or with the corn or with the great elements who controlled the weather so that offerings would be made and thanks would be given and that the relationship would be balanced. We really don't have that, most of us today. And so I look at the whole gratitude practice in terms of our relationship to the natural world as being, you know, very much rooted in, in those types of experiences. So if we don't have the relationship to where the food comes from as much, there might be simple ways we can cultivate that, you know, maybe it is just starting a little vegetable garden or, you know, maybe it is joining a CSA. But the experience of awe, you know, that experience of awareness, of gratitude, can also come you know, from spending time and just being aware and being present. One of the things that we did together, Lara, was you know, our sit-spot practice where you know, we spend some time regularly just sitting for 15 minutes or a half an hour just being a witness to the earth. And sometimes it's through that dedicated connection to a specific place that we can begin to form relationships with that tree, that rock, that particular place on the earth. We might get to know the trees, the birds, the chipmunks, squirrels, who inhabit that particular place. We might get to know them as individuals. And sometimes it's through those relationships. Like, hey, I know that chipmunk. He's got a little divot in his ear. Maybe you name the chipmunk and maybe that's Chippy. And you see Chippy, you get to know Chippy. And, um, you know, those types of deepening relationships can foster and cultivate uh, a sense of gratitude as well. So, you know, really it boils down to, I think being in relationship, being connected, I will just close on this, you know, this, and I've been talking for a couple minutes here, but, you know, one of the things that arises out of becoming closer to something, whether, you know, might be getting close to that chipmunk. If we allow ourselves to open our hearts up and to open a relationship and get to know that little chipmunk, you know, at some point, that little chipmunk's, you know, not going to be there anymore or that tree's going to fall over. And that is when the relationship can open our hearts up to not only the pleasure and the joy, but also the pain of being connected to a place or to a landscape. And, uh, you know, John Young, who is one of the nature connection teachers that's had a big influence on me. He was quoted as saying once, someone asked him, "You know, if you're looking to be a nature connection guide, what kind of advice would you have for them? And he said, well, if you're gonna get into nature connection work, then you should familiarize yourself with grief because that comes up for a lot of people in nature. I think that is the other side of it and I think that's an important part of the work is the kind of space that it allows for people to feel and Mm -hmm. kind of catch up with themselves. I've seen it a lot uh, in my work for sure.
0: I really appreciate you bringing that into the conversation, Micah, on so many levels. Two things coming to my mind are one, I think our inability as a nation to know grief. There's not really space in our society or any kind of teaching around feeling grief and feeling loss and allowing those feelings which is resulting in covering them, usually with detachment or anger. And so being able to process feelings like that and feel that. And I think being out in the natural world, there's there's a kind of space for that or a feeling that like the earth can take it. That's very powerful. And then also the other thing that comes to mind from what you shared is, of course, if we can care at that level about this planet and the species that we're sharing it with, then perhaps our actions towards those living beings begin to shift.
1: Yes, right. This is, in a way, the doorway to stepping into our role as caretakers again. Mm -hmm. To really be caretakers, we have to care. And I think to care, we have to know. So the process of sitting in your backyard and getting to know your land is the doorway to stepping into that role as caretaker that's our ancestral heritage we you know human beings have always been caretakers and i think that's our role i mean that's personally my belief is that that's our role is to care for the earth that comes through being in relationship and spending the time and being connected and You know, one of my hopes for our, you know, we've got this school up at Kripalu where we train folks to be mindful outdoor guides and to help people get reconnected to land through mindfulness. And one of my hopes is that the more mindful outdoor wanderers we have out there, the more people who are paying attention and walking the forests and getting to know the land and the plants and the animals, we kind of become the eyes and the ears of the earth again, and we'll be able to notice if something's out of balance or be able to tend that's a lifelong journey <laughs> mm-hmm. you know there's so much to know and so much to learn um, but that's part of the fun of it too is like that's the joy of it is learning can be a joyful journey, and uh, there's no end to what we can learn you know when we turn our ourselves toward the earth
0: yeah it's <laughs> at first it's <laughs> for me, I know it seemed like once i open that door like oh wow there is a long way to go but then just settling into yeah yeah like there's a long way to go and gotta start somewhere so um sit spot I think is a great advice a great practice and a place that we can start one of the things I love about sit spot is that you're just you're sitting in awareness and so often our interactions With the natural world are like doing stuff even like for instance I love to hike but it's like kind of aggressive sometimes and so and we're missing so much when we're hiking especially if we're kind of hiking fast and um, there's a disturbance that's happening to the earth I love the way you often describe it Micah when you're teaching is kind of this rippling this kind of like rippling out that happens on the earth floor and the little communication that happens where the living beings know that we're there, right? So, of course, they're going to hide from us um, or change their behaviors, but something happens in that sit spot where we we really um, sort of disappear into the environment.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I wonder if there are any other um, advice or practices you might give to folks who are just starting this journey or living in the city or don't have a a ton of time to get out in the natural world or even for folks who might be a little nervous or fearful of nature, bugs, weather.
1: One of the studies that came out recently was out of the UK and it showed that 120 minutes a week of being outside correlated with much better physical and mental health overall than folks who weren't getting 120 minutes outside every week. So I would encourage those folks to think about 120 minutes a week like the new 10,000 steps a day.
0: Mm.
1: And just set a goal that you're going to be outside for 120 minutes a week. And if you have to break it up and do half an hour one day and the rest, you know, however you can break that up, but do it, like do it. And I would say it's not like a nice to, it's a must. You must do this. If you want to feel better and f- support your health and your well-being. it's just a must. You have to try to find the way to do it. And you don't have to be in a wild place. You don't have to go to an, an, a state park, a national park. Even if you just get outside and you're on the sidewalk, you're walking down the street, you can look up and see the blue sky, you can s- breathe in the fresh air, You can go find a tree. You might have a pocket park near you. Just get outside. Try to get those 120 minutes a weekend out there. Whatever you can is going to have a really, really big impact. The other thing is the sit spot practice can be really restorative. And so again, if you're in an urban area and you have a fire escape, or even if you just have a nice window you like to sit by, make it a practice where... In the morning or at the end of the day, you sit on your fire escape or you sit by that window, maybe have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, and you just rest your attention with whatever's moving on the earth, right? So you may be looking out over trees, you may be looking at the clouds blowing across the sky, but just allow yourself to sort of zone out. And try not to hold your attention at all. Just let your focus go wherever it wants to go, wherever it's beautiful, wherever it's fascinating, right? You might just be watching a bird eating out of the bird feeder. That's so good for your brain,
0: Hmm.
1: right? Because we spend so much of our day super focused, trying to focus, 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 focus. That's not sustainable forever. You have to let your brain wander. And our our ancestors, we were always kind of letting our attention go back to restorative environments, green spaces, sky swimming, the blue sky, water, things blowing in the wind, resting your gaze on these things for a little while at the end of the day, the start of your day, very, very important self-care practice. So you know, those are two things I'd offer right there.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's super helpful. And I actually have a friend who lives on 116th street and she's been doing that on her little fire escape. And she was telling me all about these birds that are there visiting every day. So it's totally possible.
1: I love it. That's great.
0: Yeah. And I know it's, it, it's bringing her a lot of joy and really settling the the nervous system. So it's pretty cool.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really cool.
0: And I know you have a special workshop that you do sometimes as we get into winter as it becomes maybe harder to get those 120 minutes, was it? Yeah. 120 minutes in two hours. That's that's not that much, guys. Uh, we can do it. <laughs> but um, do you think you're going to give that again this year, Micah?
1: No, I'm going to have a winter solstice program that I'll be doing here at Kripalu. Okay. I haven't yet decided if I'm going to run Befriending Winter. I may do that as an online course. So I'll keep you posted on that. But all of my programs are are posted on uh, my faculty page on the Kripalu website. So if anybody's interested in seeing the trainings and the programs I'm offering, you can just go to the Kripalu website, type in my name, and they're all there on my faculty page. So I do have a uh, Archery as a Spiritual Doorway program coming up in September. And then in November, I'm running a uh, men's retreat here at Kripalu with uh, my good friend Rudy Pierce. And then we'll be running two level one Mindful Outdoor Guide trainings and one level two Mindful Outdoor Guide trainings this fall here as well. So a lot of trainings coming up.
0: Well, I know I have to get on that level two. It's on my to-do list and I will get there okay. um, for my level two. It might not be this fall, but um, I'm going to keep watching for when the next one is. Awesome. Is there anything that I didn't ask you, Micah, um, that- you maybe wanted to share today?
1: I thought, yeah, some really great questions. And yeah, no, I don't think so. Though. I think we covered a lot of really great ground today and uh, I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, I really appreciate the work that you do. So no, I can't think of anything else. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. It was great to connect and share.
0: Well, I always enjoy when I get a chance to talk to you, Micah, even a really great influence on my life and my husband's and I saw the way so many people in both courses that I attend with you just shifted and opened and reacted to the teachings that you're guiding. So I encourage folks listening to go on and check out Micah's site and his work at Kripalu. I'll put all those links in. And maybe I'll see some of you there at Micah's next training. Thank you, Micah. Thanks, Lara. As we buzz around the busy world clear there are billions of paths as we buzz around the busy world we will appear in other people's photographs as we speed through the centuries we will collide and the light will bend we will be accidentally immortalized in someone else's land